the Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinkerman. We'd be, we'd be utterly hopeless, at least if we weren't Jews. I, I don't know if any of us are in here are Messianic Jews, but if you are not a Jew, if you are a Gentile, and the door to freedom for us was shut, but God opened it 2,000 years ago in Palestine by coming into it, by sending his own son into it for us to live a perfect life, die on the cross in our place for our sin, to rise again from the dead three days later, conquering sin, death, Satan, and the power of hell for us so that the door to freedom can be opened. But that's not all that we're looking for, and it's already been alluded to. We're also looking forward to the completion of that rescue mission. We're looking forward to when our great king will come again, when he'll put everything right. Advent hinges on remembering the king who came and looking forward to the return of the king. That's what I want to talk to you about today. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at a whole chapter of Scripture. Um, it's only 21 verses, so bear with me here. And we're going, to, we're going to walk through the text, and I'd like to draw out a, the theme of Kings here. Uh, but the theme of Kings runs throughout the Bible. There's even two books called Kings in the Bible. And it resonates deeply with our hearts that we want a king, and we especially want a good king, a just king, someone that can rule and put everything right. And man, don't we long for that even more after the past couple of weeks. We see all the tragedy and the the horror and the injustice and the suffering in our world. We long for a king that will come to, to end school shootings. We long for a king that will come to put an end to human trafficking. We long for a king that will come to put an end to abortion. We long for a king that will come to put an end to famine. And our children dying. And the good news is we have a king that is coming to do all of that. But we're still in that time of longing. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we we uncover the history of how the the nation of Israel got their first king. And I want to draw four parallels from this particular account to our lives today. Because their story is very much like our story. Let's read it together. If you do not have a Bible, there are some hardback black ones at the back. Just take one. It's our gift to you. Also, we have a huge box out there in the, in the main room of Bibles that are kind of a lost and found. Here's the cool thing about that. You might actually find somebody that had your same name. Just take it. It's a gift to you. And then you actually got a Bible with your name on it. Um, you might have to cross out the last name, but that box has been sitting there for a while. So just grab a Bible. We want you to have a Bible. We want you to be in your Bibles and, and knowing your Bibles and understanding that your Bible is about Jesus. It's pointing to Him. That's why we can be in the Old Testament today and very much be talking about our King Jesus. So here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 1. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Apparently that was tolerated back then. Just to come right out and say it. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. 
as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will run in front, they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvests, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. I want to draw four parallels from this passage that um, we find ringing true in our own lives. The first one is that we all long for a king. We all long for a king. And especially one we can see, and you see that in this passage, that these people are saying, we want a king we can see that, that goes out before us. We want one like all the other nations. But it's true that on each of our hearts, there is an ancient memory trace of a good king, of a just king, of a righteous king. And we cannot escape that. Our hearts were built for a king. Our hearts were built to be under a king. They long for a king. So when we don't have a king, we are not at home. Psychologically, mentally, and physically, emotionally, we can't handle being without a king. We were built with one, and that's why, despite king's dismal record throughout history, and they have one, if you look at human history, the history of kings is awful. It's nothing but an account of oppression and slavery and abuse and misuse of the king's people. It's one person misusing all the other people for his own good and his own gain. And yet, we long for kings. We love them. We, we yearn for them. We bow down to them. We, we obsess over them. Ginny and I got a good uh, illustration of this when we went to Swaziland. You know, because of the dismal record of kings throughout history... Most society, almost every society has gotten rid of absolute monarchy and put in place some sort of a democracy, okay? Because human beings, are, they just can't be trusted. They're too wicked to handle that kind of power. But in Swaziland, Swaziland is actually the last remaining absolute monarchy on earth. This dude's got all the power, King Maswadi, right? And you've heard the phrase, absolute monarchy is absolute chaos, and that's true, He's got loads of power. He, dis- he calls all the shots, but his people are suffering. Many of his people don't have clean drinking water. He takes the best of the land. It just sounds so much like this passage, what God tells the people in, in 1 Samuel here. It sounds so much like that. He takes the best of the land, and he has people farm that for his palaces. He has 12 or 13 wives. I think one of them cheated on him, so he got rid of her. But 12 or 13 wives, he built each one of those a mansion. And he brings in the best of the foods. He, he, takes all, he makes millions and millions of dollars while a lot of his children in his kingdom are dying for preventable, preventable causes. 
And other nations have said, look, you've got to give up some power. We're not helping you. And he says, no way. And yet, the people love him. I don't get it. I mean, as, as Americans, we're like, don't you guys see? This guy's a loser. You know, this, we, you know we make fun of our, our political figures, and, and especially if they're doing a bad job. But our, the, the politicians that we have in place are world's better people than this king. And yet... Something about them longs for a king and something about them identifies with if the king's successful, then somehow we're successful. They want to be underneath a king and they don't even mind the king. And in America, we don't have kings, right? We don't have royalty, but we make up our own because we need them, right? Um, I'm always amazed at how Americans get so obsessed with the government in England. How many of you guys, let's just, you don't have to raise your hands. But how many stayed up late at night to watch a wedding over there? And you know nothing about the English government. You're just fascinated with kings and queens. Right? And, and we read all, their, we read all the, the, the magazines and the tabloids and, and all the stories about them. We obsess over the little details of their lives. Why is that? You know, what do we do with our celebrities, our, our, our movie stars and our famous athletes? We make them into kings. We have coronations. We follow them around and take pictures of them and obsess over every detail of their lives. Because we need a king. We even do that with pastors sometimes. That we, really charismatic pastors become almost like kings in their congregation. And the people, they, want, they look to that king as the functional savior. Think about our literature that we love. Think about the movies we love. The stories we love. At the heart of it, what's, the, what, what's probably one of the most common themes? One of the most common storylines is this. There was once a great king. He ruled with justice and with power and with might. And under him, the people flourished. They enjoyed a great time of of success and peace in the land. But something's taken the king away. King Richard is gone. Now Robin Hood has to steal from Prince John. And I know Robin Hood is a fox because I'm a dad. And and Prince John is a big bear. But uh, the story is still the same. There was once a time when the, the, when the king ruled, but that, that time is gone. And now there's, there's evil in the land. There's oppression in the land. The people are suffering. They're being taxed to death. You know? Think about, think about King Arthur. Think about the story that we love, J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. King Aragorn is gone. Middle Earth is in this time of darkness. But there's a, promised, there's a promise that the king has made that he will return. That he will return. That's the same story, friends, that we find ourselves in. It's in a sense that we're living in this permanent time of Advent that we're saying that we're, it's not just four weeks out of the year, but this whole time we're longing, as we sang today, for the coming of the King, for the returning of our King when He puts everything right. That's what we're longing for. We all long for a King. We need a King. Our hearts will, are built for a King. They're built for the most perfect King. And we see that from the Israelites. We all long for a King. Then point number two, we come to, sadly, we have a true king, but we've rejected him. This is one of the most striking parts of this passage. Um, I just can't get over it. God himself says this. He says, Samuel, it's not you they've rejected. It's me they've rejected as their king. They've rejected me. God experienced rejection. And it wasn't just then, but he says, ever since I brought them out of the land of Egypt, they've been rejecting me. 
They've been rejecting me. And we might say, hey, these Israelites, you know, what is their deal? How, how, why would they not see God as their king? I mean, after all, he sent the plagues, and he parts the Red Sea, and he provides bread from heaven, water from a rock. Surely they would want this king than an earthly king. Why would they reject this king? But it's no different for you and I. It's no different for people thousands of years later when this same king would come again in the form of a baby in Palestine. And they didn't expect him to come like that. So what did they do? He grew up and he preached the kingdom of God is at hand. And they whipped him and they beat him and they stripped him naked and they killed him on a cross. He was rejected again. As Isaiah says, in that, as Isaiah says he was rejected and they esteemed him not. But this is our story too, isn't it? I mean, if we look back and we say, how could they? We're not seeing clearly. To be a Christian means that you understand that you too have rejected this king. That you too at one point have said, I hate having this king over us. See, we're kind of ambivalent about kings. We're kind of double-minded about this idea. We say, yes, we long for a king, but then the king comes and he says, I'm going to rule over you. And we say, no way. You're not telling me what to do. No way. We're double-minded about it. All of us are. Romans 5 says like this, Romans 5 verse 10, says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Do you realize that there was a time when you were God's enemy? In order to be a Christian, you have to be able to say that, that there was a time when I was an enemy of God. And even now, as a Christian, there's a part of me that sometimes says, Get out of here, you king. I'm tired of you telling me what to do. See, Christians can admit that openly. Christians do admit that openly and that the only reason why, you're, why you aren't an enemy of God is because he has, he has made peace through His own Son, Jesus Christ. James 4 verse 4 says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? You say, I've never hated God. Yes, you have. Maybe you didn't hate the idea of God. But you've hated this God who says, I'm going to come as a king and I'm going to rule over you. We all have. Every last one of us has said, No, I'm not, I'm not having that. Why do we reject him? He comes as a king. He comes with a rule. He comes with a yoke. He says, I must be first. Think about some of the things that the king said while he was on earth. Think about some of the things Jesus said. Okay? Uh, one of the things that rings in my mind is, he says, anyone who doesn't hate father or mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Why do you say that kind of stuff? You know, that's one of those passages we like to ignore. But what he means is this. It's, it's, as a matter of fact, Jesus commands us to love all those people. So what he's saying is not that you literally hate them. But what he's saying is that you must love me more. You must love me infinitely more than all these people that you love dearly in your life. And you must love me to such a degree, and I must be first in your life to such a degree, that your love for all of them looks like hatred in comparison. I want to be first. I want to be on the throne. I am king. And I won't come in any other way. Jesus Christ comes to us as our king and we hate it. We hate it. We rebel against it. It's like King Herod says in that song in Jesus Christ Superstar. He says, get out you king. Get out of my life. I don't want you here. Have you felt that in your own heart? I know I have. Have you felt that at times? I don't want you to be king. See, Jesus Christ will get into every part of your life. He has no problem coming into your business in every part of your life. Places that you would never let anyone else come into, but he's coming because he's a king. 
He's coming to have rule. He's a perfect and good king. That's why you can trust him. But he's a king nonetheless. We've rejected him. So we long for a king, but sadly, we have a true king and we've rejected him. What's the third step? What's the third point? It's inevitable we turn to serve other kings. Just like the Israelites. It's this old pattern. It happens over and over again in the Old Testament, but they turn to serve other gods, other kings. They say, we need someone to rule us. And see, that's the ironic thing. When you say, like, like Herod said, get out, you king, get out of my life. You think, the illusion is you think you're going to freedom. You think, ah, I'm finally rid of the king. Now I'm going to be free over here to do what I want. That's the illusion. The reality is you're trading in freedom underneath the true king for slavery to another king. That's exactly what God says. He says, you yourselves will be his slaves. You're free under the king. You're free under Jesus. He is the king that comes with a yoke that is easy and his burden is light. You come under the king and you will bloom in places you never knew you had buds. He's so good and he's where your heart is at home. He's the only place you will actually find fulfillment and joy and the only place you'll actually grow. Your heart was built to be under this king. But you say, get out, you king, get out of my life. And you go and you serve these other kings. Say, I'm going to bow to success. I'm going to bow to sexuality. I'm going to bow uh, to climbing the corporate ladder. I'm going to bow even to, to good things like family or to just being a good person, whatever it is. This is the thing that I'm going to serve in my life. And you become a slave to it. You become a slave to it. We trade in freedom underneath the true king for slavery. All other yokes, friends, produce slavery. There is no such thing as being out from underneath a king. you You either have King Jesus as king and you're free under him. Or you have some other form of king and you have slavery under it. But you're never free from a king. I'll give you an example of this. You say, how does that work? How does it work to have the yoke of King Jesus on me and yet be free? This doesn't sound, it doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. But, um, you know, think about something that you were forced to do, right? As a kid, think about a time when you were forced to do something and at first it seemed really burdensome and arduous and hard and you were like, oh, this stinks. I just hate this. But then eventually... It became a sense of joy and freedom and life to you. For instance, your parents made you do your homework so you didn't drop out of high school so you can get a job now. So the, the, the yoke, the narrowness, produced this unbelievable spaciousness and freedom. They realized that you better have a little bit of a yoke on yourself because if you do what you want right now in high school, you're going to wind up you know, saying, Burger King, how may, how may I take your order? You know, the rest of your life. You know, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be a problem. So your parents say, hey, you need to do your homework. It's a yoke, but it provides this freedom later on. Um, when Pastor Bill, uh, I first met him, he was a train wreck of, of physical fitness. And, and I, I asked him if I could tell this story. But um, when, I, when I first came here, he used to love coffee with half and half. He just dumped the half and half in his coffee. I'm like, you really... You drink half and half of your coffee? Yeah, I love half and half of my coffee. He used to love, and he'd drink about three pots of coffee a day. He used to have this little bowl on his desk with cookies in it that Susan Booth would make. And, it, and he didn't like them frozen, so he would let them thaw out on his desk. And, uh, and he never eats cookies anymore. He's such a changed man. Um, you know, he, would, uh, he loved 
burgers and french fries, still does. But you dip them in mayonnaise, because that's a real, it's a real southern thing, you know. And I, I began to, to see the need here, along with Dr. Olson, of course. Uh, <laughs> I began to see the need for some reform. And so uh, we're actually celebrating the anniversary this year. It's like five years, I think, since his, um, health, the health gospel took over. And uh, we bought him a membership to a gym here in town, to Sioux Empire Fitness, Daniel and I. And we said, you know what, uh, I think it's about time you work out. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, we didn't know what he's going to do with it, if he's just going to go sit in the t- hot tub or what. But we thought it's worth a shot. Well, he came to me one day and he said, you know what, I really understand that I need this. And I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to. And so I said, all right, you got the yoke. And, I, and we would go three times a week, and I would just bust it with him. And I would be like, don't quit now, Pastor Bill. Five more, Pastor Bill. And he just got so sick of me driving him like a train. I mean, he was just tired of it. He's like, man, what have I gotten myself into as such a slave driver? And I did that for a while, and it was hard. And he says, he calls it physical abuse, actually, to this day. Um, it was, physical, I, it was physical abuse for a time, and he was so sore. But after a while, he started kind of feeling good. And after a little while longer, he said, I think I'd like to run a marathon. And now, by the way, we ran our first marathon together. That was my first and last. And Pastor Bill has run 17 since then. He's run 17 marathons. So what happened was this unbelievable yoke, this oppression, this narrowness, became this unbelievable freedom for him. Now he has more energy, he feels better, He's, he, he, just, he just has a better outlook on life, he has a, more, a better prognosis of living longer. I mean, it's just unbelievable freedom for him to, to have had that yoke placed on him for a little while. That's the way it is with Jesus Christ. Okay? So he comes and he says, I'm going to be king. I will not come any other way. But my yoke leads to freedom. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You come underneath the king and you will flourish. You will flourish because it's only for your good that he comes to you as king. It's only for your good. So, we long for a king. We have a king, but we've rejected him. And then we go to serve other kings. What's the last point? What's the, what's the, the final point that we see the Israelites do here? Well, it's their endless cycle. They realize they need the true king. They, they come full circle. And they do this several times, but we do it as well. Eventually, we become tired and disillusioned eventually become sick of the tyranny of our counterfeit kings. We say, hey, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to produce freedom in my life. Hey, wait a minute. I thought I was getting out from underneath that king that, would, that told, was telling me what to do. And now these other things are driving me. Now I have addictions. Now I have other bigger problems. And these things are actually destroying my life. And we cry out to the true king, just like the Israelites did. They cry out to him. Now, Perhaps the most sobering part about this passage is God says, in that day I won't answer you. But praise God for Jesus because that changed when Jesus Christ died and rose again for us. That when we run, when we reject Him, when we turn our backs on Him, He says, I'll never say no. You come back to me and I'll always answer. I'll always come and I'll be your king. I'll always come. I'll always invite you back underneath my shelter, back underneath my yoke. There's great shelter underneath the king. It's a fearful thing to be out from it. And maybe some of you are in that place today where you said, you know what? I'm tired of my other kings. I'm getting really sick of all the tyranny. They're driving me like crazy. I've got these things in my life. 
And they're, they're ruining my life, in fact. And I'm ready to come to the king. We would love for you to come to the king today. We'd love for you to come. We want to talk to you about that afterwards. But for the rest of you, that you've said, if you, if you are a Christian, what you are claiming is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was one of the earliest Christian confessions. Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? He's king. He's ruler. He has all authority. My life is not my own anymore. Like Paul says, for I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, you're not your own anymore. You have a king. He gets to say how your life goes. He gets to tell you what to do. He's a good king. He's a perfect king. He has your best interests in mind. He wants the best for you, but he's a king nonetheless, and we dare not approach him any other way. We must come to him as a king. So the question is, if you're a Christian, you say, Jesus is my king. I'm not my own anymore. The only question is, are you treating him like one? This Christmas, this Advent, the only question that remains for us to answer is, am I coming to him as a king? Am I treating him like one? Tim Keller says there's four ways to tell if you're treating him like a king. Four simple, small words. I'd like to ask you those four things as we close. Number one, are you obeying him? Are you obeying him? Now, this is where people get off the train. They say, no way. Hey, enough about this Jesus stuff. I was cool with him giving my life, his life for me. But this whole idea about him telling me what to do, how dare he? How dare he think he can tell me what? We, we hate this part about him, do we not? This is the most unpopular thing to tell people. You, yes, you can. Jesus Christ, he, he'll save you. He gave his life for you. But you must obey him. Jesus Christ comes as a king, and he demands obedience. Now, The interesting thing is, he's such a good king that he's already made a way for your disobedience. He's already provided grace and forgiveness for your disobedience. And he's forgiven you before you ever did anything right. So your obedience then is never to earn anything. It's never to earn the love of the king. It's only to say, he is my king and I love him. Look what he did for me. Like Martin Luther said, he said... We are saved by faith alone, but we're never saved by faith that is alone. It's that James stuff, right? That faith without works is dead. So if you say, Jesus Christ is my king, but I don't give a rip about obeying him, he's not really your king. He's more of a consultant or something. You know? Are you treating him as a king? Are you obeying him? See, the king comes to us and he says several things that are very difficult. And there's two mindsets here that, that, are, that I really want to highlight. You know, the Christian comes to the things that the king says, like, you must always forgive, always. You you must use sexuality to uh, renew your commitment in an exclusive marriage. That's the only time you use it. He says things like that. Um, You must always repay evil with good. The king comes to us and says those kinds of things. And the Christian comes and says, those things are hard. Those things are hard to do. And, And it may not get that right perfectly every time. But that's what the king said, so I'm going to try to do it. That's the Christian mindset, okay? There's grace for you when you fail, but you come and you say, I'm going to obey the king. That's what the king said. I got to obey. I got to obey. Help me to obey. That's the Christian mindset, okay? The other mindset is, well, I'm going to come to Jesus and, and, and consider what he says, but if it's not pragmatic, if it's not practical, if it's not if it maybe doesn't make sense to me, if it's not logical, if it's not culturally what I think is, is probably right, then you know, I, I might throw it out. Well, you're not obeying Jesus. And you're not treating him as a king. You're treating him as a consultant. 
You're just going to him asking his opinion, then you sleep with whoever you want to, and then you, you, give your, you use your money however you want to, and then, and then you treat people however you want to, and you decide if you want to forgive or not. Jesus is not the king in your life. He's the king if you're obeying him. Are you obeying him today? And that does not mean perfectly. This is not works righteousness, people. This is about evidence that he's your king. It's about evidence and a heart that says, ah, this is hard. The king makes some tough calls here. But he's the king. So he gets to call the shots, not me. Is Jesus king or is he merely a consultant? Number two, you've got to obey. Number two, you've got to submit. Now, there's a lot of people, a lot of Christians are really good at obeying Jesus until the circumstances in their lives fall apart. Now, I, I have to admit, if I was one of those parents in Newtown, Connecticut today, I would be in this category. Um, struggling with submitting to the king. Now, what does submission mean? It doesn't mean you, you paste a smile on your face and you say, well, I'm just praising Jesus because everything's great and he's got a plan. No, that, that plastic kind of stuff is garbage. It means that you're wrestling and you're saying, oh, I don't understand you. I don't get you sometimes. Why did you allow this? But, there's a, there's a big but, but you are the king, you know what's best. That's, that's what it means to submit. It says, you know what's best. Obviously, you see clearer than I do. Obviously, your, your big perspective is so much broader, so much clearer than my little you know, perspective. And it's hard to understand a, you know, a big, giant Persian rug when you're just looking at one little speck of it. But he can see the whole thing. And that doesn't give a reason for the why of our suffering ever, but it just says, I trust you. You must know what's best. Job's our best example of this. Job finally came to this conclusion. He says, he knows my way. And when I come out, I'm going to be like pure gold. He knows my way. He's got, he knows what's best. I, I guess I don't know what's best. Now, we have a good idea, don't we? We have a good idea of how our lives should go. I do. I know exactly how my life should go. My kids should live to be um, old, and I should live to be old too, but my kids should definitely bury me. And I, you know, I should have these, I should see lots of great things happen in God's kingdom, but that might not happen at all. See, I don't know the way life is supposed to go. So submitting is about trusting. It's about coming to him as king and saying, you, you know what's best. So you obey, you submit, then you rely. Now we've touched on this before, but here's, here's what this means to come to Jesus as king. To rely on him means that you say, anything, if, if there's anything plus Jesus that is necessary for my happiness, joy, fundamental security, and purpose and destiny in life, if it's anything plus, or if Jesus plus anything, then Jesus really isn't your king. That other thing is your king. If Jesus, see, for Christians, a lot of times, Jesus just becomes a means to an end. He just becomes the means to getting to your true king or getting to your true God. He's just, Jesus, please give me this. Just please, please give me this. And Jesus is not the happy ending in and of himself. Jesus is the means to getting there. What it means to come to as a king means that you rely on him and you say, without you, Jesus, I'm, I'm like, you're like my limb and I'm sitting on you above the Grand Canyon. If, you, if you're gone, I got nothing. I'm toast. I'm, I'm going down. I'm not holding on to anything else. You know, uh, you, you're everything. I'm not putting my hope, my faith, my joy in anything but 
you. That doesn't mean you don't experience joy and, and life and, and the people around you and the, the good things that God gives you. That's, that's certainly true. But it means that there's nothing more fundamental than Jesus to your happiness, life, joy, purpose in life. There's nothing more fundamental than Jesus to that. So it means to rely on him. You say, without you, I got nothing. That's what it's like to treat him as king. And then lastly, to expect. So we obey, submit, rely, and expect. Um, see, I think that with this last point, this is a particular struggle of mine. Um, how many of you are kind of cynical in here? A little bit um, pessimistic sometimes? You, know, you got that kind of pessimistic idea? Yeah, I can be that way too. And, and when we come to Jesus in a pessimistic way about life, about what God can do in our lives or what God can do in the church, in this neighborhood, in this city, when we come to him with sort of a pessimistic attitude like, oh, God can't do anything here, we're not treating him as king. Oh, God can't work in this situation in my life. God can't do anything here. You're coming to a king. So there's got to be some sort of level of expectation. You've got to learn to expect. Again, John Newton put it this way. He said, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You need to remember, you're coming to a king. You're not coming to somebody that's without resources. You're not coming to someone who's without power. Now, he will only give you those things that you would want if you knew what he does. As a good and perfect father, he's only going to give you those things that that you would want if you knew everything that he does. Okay, so he gives you what's best for you. So it, if you ask for something and he doesn't give it to you, it's not, it's not this you know, name it, claim it, and blab it, grab it kind of thing. It is, it is this thing of saying, Jesus is a king, and this is, this is what I'm desiring. I want, I, I want change in this area of my life, or I want this person to come to the Lord, or I want a physical healing here. You ask for it. He's a king. He can do it. He's got all the resources at his disposal. He's a king. We're not expecting anymore. Like I said, this is a struggle for me. We're not treating him as king. So you obey, submit, rely, and expect. Friends, are you treating him as a king? Jesus is coming back soon. He's going to establish a new world, free from all the things that we hate, free from all the violence, all the human trafficking, all the heartbreak. He's going to establish a new world that's perfect and new, just like it was meant to be. But most of all, he's going to come and he's going to be the king that we've always longed for, where our hearts are finally home. I pray that when he comes, he finds us treating him like a king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we confess you as our king. We admit that um, sometimes with our hard hearts and our stubborn heads, uh, it's hard to uh, submit. It's hard to obey. Um, It's hard to rely and expect. So would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to be a people that loves the King, that enjoys coming underneath the cover of the King, that enjoys... Uh, coming underneath your yoke, which you say is easy and your burden is light. We thank you for carrying the large part of the burden for us. We thank you for taking care of our burden on the cross, for purchasing our pardon there, so that we can once again come under the King. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
challenging message, but we wanted very much up front at the beginning of this series to lay the foundation that Jesus is king and that we are his subjects. And if you claim him as Lord, then let him be Lord. If you claim him as king, let him be king. And so that's a great challenge for us as a church. And if you struggled with that, it is our desire to help you. And we want to be very much available to do that. We're going to have some people available in just a few moments to pray with you if you need prayer. But let me speak to some of you in particular for just a moment here as we close today. It is our desire at Life Church every week to give you an opportunity, if you don't know Jesus, to know him personally. And maybe you're a person who has been sitting out there through this message and it's hitting you like a ton of bricks that, hey, I've lived among those subjects in the kingdom, but I've never been a subject myself. I've never really given my heart to a king. I've never really opened myself up so that the king of glory could come to me. Oh, I felt things and, and I've heard things and maybe even understood things, but I've never, ever really bowed to the king. I've never, ever really made him the Lord of my life. This could be the most fabulous Christmas for you. And not only for you, but those who love you. Those who have been praying for you. Those who care about you. Those who long for the King to come to you. And that you may know Him. And so I want to say to you this morning that that door has been opened again. I'll say it. That door has been opened. God has made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ. He let Him be born on this earth to live and to die and to be resurrected so that you may have eternal life. There's an amazing passage of scripture that is one of my most favorite that is found in Revelation chapter 3. And it is in the letter to the Laodiceans. God has opened the door. But I want to tell you something. As his spirit calls and draws you, only you can open your heart. And Jesus says in the passage in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He calls. He calls to you today. He calls to every one of us to know him. He understands more than you and I do the longing that is in our heart and soul. He understands the longing that you have for a king. Because his heavenly father, the living God, created you with that longing. And he understood that when he was with the father. And that's why he could say, no one takes my life, I lay it down. And I accept the joy that is set before me, which is the cross, to die for the sins of the world. Because he understood the father's heart more than you and I could ever and he understood that the Father created you with a longing for this amazing King. And so we want to give you the opportunity to know this Jesus today, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you've never known him, you can pray with our prayer team. If those of you who are on the prayer team today will come up, we will give you the opportunity. We're going to lower the lights for just a moment. We're going to play a little soft music. If you need prayer, please come. If not... When I pray, you are dismissed and free to go. Please join us tomorrow evening. Have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. Let us pray. God, right now in these 
few moments would you open all of our hearts in a very special way. Give us the revelation of Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Help us that we will bow before you and we will allow you to have that kingship over us. Do this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.